And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Sam. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Cam Ogilvie. I'm one of the elders for Church of the City. I want to start off today by asking if any of you have heard of the name Abraham Maslow. Just put up your hand if you've heard. Okay, I see a couple of hands. Maybe some of you psychology students would know. Abraham Maslow was a psychologist during the 1950s and 60s. And while many of his peers were looking at the psychology of illness, Abraham Maslow wanted to understand what were the conditions for wellness. And so Maslow came up with what has come to be known as one of modern psychology's great theories, known as Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So you would see it in kind of a pyramid structure where the idea is that in order to get to the top, self-actualization, which you can think about at that as just living a full life. In order to get there, you kind of need to build on the things that are below. So it starts off with your physiological needs, food, uh, shelter, then it starts, goes to safety, uh, security. So this could be job security, but it could be physical safety as well. Belonging, love, connection is next, and then after that, esteem and so on. I point this out simply because I don't know if any of you realize this, but we need to belong. We cannot live a full life if we don't belong somewhere or to someone. Belonging matters so much that uh, Jonathan Haidt, a social psychologist at Stern School of Business, tweeted this earlier this year, belonging matters more than being right. Can you believe that? So, we will compromise on what we know to be true, to be real about the world, in order to belong. This isn't a statement of how things ought to be, it's just an observation of how things are. We have to belong, and belonging and security really feed back into each other, don't they? We feel quite insecure when we don't belong somewhere. And we need to understand this because God has hardwired this into ourselves. And so if we do not find our ultimate security, our ultimate belonging in Him, we are going to compromise in order to find our sense of belonging somewhere else. 
And so that's really what Jesus is doing as he's speaking to the church in Philadelphia and by extension to us is he is reminding us of where we can find true security and belonging. That's where we're going today, but as we usually do, why don't we take a moment, have some silence, check in with how you're feeling, and then we'll jump back into the text. All right, a little bit of an introduction to the church in Philadelphia. I've been drawing heavily from Colin J. Hermer. He wrote a book on the letters to the seven churches of uh, Asia in the historical setting. So, Philadelphia's history actually begins about 200 years or more before John writes his letter. It goes back to 160 BC, where the Greek king of Pergamum, Eumenes, he goes off to fight the Gauls and he gets killed by the Gauls, and that news returns home. And so his brother, Attalus, uh, recognizing that his brother has been killed, he assumes the throne, and he marries his brother's widow. But there's a plot twist, because Eumenes has not been killed. He is alive. And so Eumenes comes back home, and maybe you don't think this is a surprising thing, but it was at the time. Attalus gives back the throne to his brother, and he returns his brother's wife to him. And so for this act of brotherly love, he is renamed Philadelphus, um, brother lover. And so this city eventually in his lifetime is named after him. It sits at the foot of Mount Molus, so it's on volcanic soil, and it's about 50 kilometers from Sardis. You can see a picture on the screen. This is Sardis, but it's the same mountain range. Hermer writes that there was no city in Asia so heavily dependent on viticulture, grape growing, wine growing. And so you can make out two things probably from this. Who do you think the Greek god of Philadelphia was? Ah, there you go, the god of drunkenness. And uh, this is the other thing you can make out is with volcanoes comes earthquakes. And so in AD 17, there was a massive earthquake in this area. It's, it's legendary in the historical records. Sardis and Philadelphia were right near the epicenter. It hit them so significantly that Tiberius Caesar did not require them to pay taxes for five years. And like most people do when an earthquake happens, many of them scattered to the countryside. They built their homes in the countryside because they did not feel secure inside the city walls, and the tremors lasted for years. Many emperors invested in trying to rebuild the city and so gave it new names as it was being rebuilt. So uh, it was first renamed Neo Caesarea or Caesar's New City. And then about 50 or so years later, the emperor Vespasian renamed Philadelphia Flavia after his family name, the Flavians. A new name was a great honor. It meant that you had the emperor's interest and his attention. 
And then in AD 92, Vespasian's son Domitian orders 75% of the vineyards to be cut down because he's trying to deal with a supply-demand issue in grapes going to Italy. In summary, through a combination of natural disaster and fickle leadership, Philadelphia is socially and economically insecure. And somewhere around this time, John receives this revelation. So now I'm going to pick up in Revelation 3, 7. Jesus, speaking to John, says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. We've already talked in this series how Revelation is full of imagery that links back to the Old Testament, and this is one such example. Jesus is referencing a prophecy of Isaiah's in Isaiah chapter 22 about the king's steward. If you don't know about the position of a king's steward, there was no higher position that someone could hold in the kingdom. Charles Ellicott writes, it gave him supreme control over the treasury of the king and the internal affairs of his kingdom. And this power is symbolized by holding the key to the king's house. That's how significant it is. At the time that Isaiah wrote this prophecy, there's a guy named Shebna who is the steward, but he's a bad one. He's been making a bunch of bad decisions. And so Isaiah basically says, Shebna, you are out. God is going to replace you with someone who is faithful to me. And the man who replaces him is named Eliakim, and his name is very fitting because Eliakim means God establishes or God raises up. So here's from Isaiah chapter 22, starting at verse 21. I will clothe him, Eliakim, with your robe, Shebna, and I will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority into his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open." And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole of his whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. Basically, Eliakim's family is going to hang all of their hope for security and prosperity and the fate of the children who would come after them on him. Here's the next verse. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. Even the better steward is going to let their family down. Even he is a shaky place for them to put their hope. And so, if you know the history of Israel, ambassadors come to Judah from Babylon, and Hezekiah is feeling good about himself, so King Hezekiah shows them around the treasury and kind of shows off a little bit. And so, who's the one who's coming around opening all the doors and showing off the treasury? It's Eliakim. And 50 years later, the Babylonians come and begin their siege of Jerusalem. So why does Jesus reference this, this prophecy? I, I believe Jesus is doing this because he's saying, I am the true 
Eliakim. I'm the better one. I'm the one who God raised up and established. I am the holy one. I am set apart. I'm not like the others. I am the true one. I'm the real deal. I'm not a counterfeit. I don't compromise. You can hang everything on me, all of your hopes, all of your security on me. With me, you are secure. And why did the Philadelphians need to know this? Well, because their livelihoods had been shattered by earthquakes and impulsive emperors. There was no security in Philadelphia. There was no safety inside the city walls. And so Jesus wanted to remind them that they were safe in his hands. And by extension, us today. We're going to keep reading on. This is uh, from verse 8 now, chapter 3, verse 8. Jesus says to them, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet." This is maybe a little bit of an odd statement. What is this synagogue of Satan? If you've been following along, you'll notice that Jesus has the same comment about a group uh, when he's speaking to the church in Smyrna in chapter 2. And it's important to note that in the early church, many of those who were followers of Jesus were Jews, uh, ethnically and religiously. John, who's writing this, was a Jew, and so Jews still went to synagogue Uh, They still participated in the Jewish feasts. And so this isn't necessarily a conflict between Jews and Christians so much as think of it as a conflict between two subgroups within the Jewish community. And that's why scholars are thinking what's happening here is there's one Jewish group who is claiming to be true Jews. And for whatever reason, they're accusing this group of being fakes. And the fact that they are accusing them is, might be all that Jesus is alluding to by calling them a synagogue of Satan. The Hebrew word for Satan just means accuser. And so Jesus very well might be associating them with the devil, but he also might just be calling them by their synagogue being associated with accusing this group. So the church that Jesus is speaking to has likely been cast out and excluded from the synagogue. They're being misrepresented. They're slandered. They're shamed. They don't belong. Have you ever found yourself in a situation like that? Being misrepresented, excluded. What's your tendency in those moments of how you respond? Do you, do you change your narrative to try and slip into the crowd and not ruffle any feathers. Well, so here's Jesus' promise to, uh, to those who find themselves in this situation. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, my tendency is to want to finish that sentence by saying, they will learn that they were wrong. Is that in any of you? They will learn that they were wrong. My tendency when I am feeling boxed into a corner is to argue my way out of it. I will argue you into submission until you agree that I am right. But that is not the way of Jesus. Jesus is going to teach them a lesson, right? And what is that lesson? 
they will learn that I have loved you. I think what's important for us to learn from this is that the most important thing Jesus wants the world to see in us is not that we are right, but that we are loved and that we belong to Him. Maybe a familiar passage. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. All of my life, I have struggled with belonging, and it has led me to all kinds of terrible places. But this has been an area where over the past couple of years, God has really been doing a work on me, and there is so much freedom in knowing that I am loved and that I belong to God. I don't need to get defensive because I'm already defended. I don't need to argue because my case has already been made. I don't need to be bitter because the love of God is my sweetness. I don't need to convince others because I am already fully known and fully accepted by the only one who matters. And this is the way of Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In the moment when Jesus was most excluded and cast out and misrepresented, he still knew where he belonged. He still knew that he was the beloved son of God. And out of that place of security, he could forgive us. He could love us. He could love his enemies. When we are able to find our belonging in God's love for us, we don't need to protect ourselves. We're free to extend forgiveness to others just as we've received it. The most important thing Jesus wants the world to see in us is not that we are right, but that we are loved and that we belong to him. Jesus makes a few other promises to the church that are of relevance to us. Uh, Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Jesus is saying, I will protect you. I will keep you Now, this is not necessarily Jesus saying, you're not going to experience the hour of trial. You're not going to go through trial. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think he's saying that he will keep you for himself. You are safe in his hands. He's not going to lose any of those who belong to him. There's another promise in verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Hang in there. I am preparing a place for you. And if I'm preparing a place for you, I'm going to come and I'm going to take you there so that you may be where I am. And so in the meantime, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Remember where you belong. 
In verse 12, Jesus makes another promise. It's one of permanence. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. This should be familiar imagery for the Philadelphians because they've seen the temples shattered by earthquakes in the past, and Jesus is promising security, permanence in his kingdom. You've seen your city shaken before, but the one that you belong to will never be shaken. And finally, there's a promise that we are His possession in the second half of verse 12. I will write on Him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. We belong to Him. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In summary, Jesus makes five promises to secure the hearts of those He's speaking to in this letter. First, it's, I will make them, those who are excluding you, your accusers, I will make them learn that I have loved you. Then, I will protect you, I will keep you. I am coming soon. I will make you a pillar, and never shall He go out of it. I will write on him my own new name. Now, I repeat these because maybe you're picking up on some common themes throughout them. So, the Jews were famous for using a literary device called a chiasmus, and the idea of a chiasmus is that you introduce an idea and then you develop it in reverse order. And the point of it is to draw attention to the fact that these are not isolated ideas, but they are very much connected, and they're driving to a central point. And so, if we pull out those main themes, here's what we see. The first is about belonging. I will make them learn that I've loved you. You are loved, and you belong to me. The second is, I will keep you. I will make you secure. I am coming soon. And then the fourth is about security. I will make you a pillar. And the fifth is about belonging once again. So, what's the central point that Jesus is trying to drive home with this church? God created us to find our true belonging and security in Him. And this is the good news. This is what God intended from the beginning when He created us, when He created Adam and Eve and put them in a garden to live in His presence forever. True security and belonging, but we fell from that. And instead of leaving us alone, God came to us, and through His life, His death, His resurrection, Jesus secured our place of belonging in His presence once again. He met our deepest need. And these are essentials for us to know as we live as exiles here, as this is not our home. We are loved and protected by the one who God established and raised up, the Holy One, the True One. He holds the keys to the kingdom, and the door is wide open for you. No one can shut it. You are secure in His hands You are loved, and you belong to Him. Father, we thank You for Your Word to us. We thank You that we have a hope that cannot be shaken, 
because it rests on you, the true one. We thank you for the home that you are making for us, even as we feel homeless, in a sense, on this earth. Father, would you remind us of that, and would you secure us in yourself in a new way going from today, that we might honor you and be faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen.